Even when we admit that conventional or traditional war is not dead, we continue to struggle with the idea of fighting limited wars rather than total wars. What if I told you that neither term reflects reality and, and they only limit the ability of states to achieve the only acceptable goal of any war? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to episode 60 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, the Naval War College, and currently contract faculty for the Army War College. These podcasts introduce what I believe are enduring lessons of war, lessons for any citizen to use in fulfilling their role in our country's deliberations about war, peace, and everything in between. Once again, I'm going to apologize for a long break between this episode and the previous episode. What happened was I actually finished the last episode, or at least I finished writing the last episode, and then I realized that I had to do this episode first to be able to put things all together. In the last episode, that's episode 59, I presented ideas about traditional or conventional war and its relation to irregular warfare. In this episode, I'm going to go back to earlier discussions about the nature of war itself and how the concept of limited wars gets in the way of winning and securing a just and sustainable peace. Bottom line up front. No war is, or ever has been, a total war. All wars, at least for the past two centuries, have been limited wars, even the world wars of the 20th century. First, I'll explain why that is, why the one is impossible and the other is inevitable. Then I'll present how misconceptions about total and limited war developed and why those misconceptions have led to frustration of the U.S. and other Western powers since the end of World War II. The idea of limited war as distinct from total war is very old, but the term limited war wasn't used until after the Second World War. Now, the idea of total war was developed from Karl von Clausewitz's idea of warfare to the extreme or absolute war. He wrote, Quote, war is an act of violence, and there is no logical limit to the application of that force. Each side therefore compels its other to follow suit. A reciprocal action is started, which must, in theory, lead to extremes. In other words, a continual escalation of force. This would, he wrote, logically lead a combatant to apply, quote, the total means at his disposal and the strength of his will, unquote. Clausewitz's idea of absolute war was, however, only a philosophical construct. He did not propose it as a model of reality. Nonetheless, this idea seems to be reflected and even promoted in the world wars of the last century and generated concerns over a nuclear third world war. Now, when this race to extremes didn't happen in Korea, military theorists reflected on what was perceived as the reality of the Korean War. That perceived reality produced the idea of limited war. By the end of the 1950s, a report by the Rand Corporation defined limited war as, quote, restraint on an already mobilized and tremendously powerful force and deliberate resort to less efficient measures, unquote. This was contrasted with general war, which the Department of Defense defined as, quote, armed conflict between major powers in which the total resources of the belligerents are employed and the national survival of a major belligerent is in jeopardy. That's general war. The concern to avoid general, potentially cataclysmic war, led to a fixation on limited war and drove the U.S. application of military force from the 1950s to the present day. 
the result has been successful in avoiding a catastrophic global war, but it's been remarkably unsuccessful in securing just and lasting peace through, as the Rand Report described it, less efficient measures. Why is that? Well, in my opinion, it all goes back to Clausewitz, or at least in ignoring or dismissing him. In particular, in giving little attention to his statement that no one in his right mind starts a war without being clear in his mind what he wants to achieve by the war and how he intends to conduct it. This particularly applies to misconceived notions of total war, general war, and limited war. I will explain. All wars are limited wars. As I said before, Clausewitz only described absolute war as a philosophical construct which does not, cannot exist in reality. Many factors limit the ability or even the desire of one or more parties to go to a war to the extremes. Some of these factors include the ability to mobilize, deploy, and employ forces, limitations from outside factors such as a potential third party entering the war, the morale of the people, the classic Clausewitz notion of friction, and, of course, the fact that the enemy is not sitting idly by waiting to be attacked. Even the major powers in World War II did not fight a total war. As just a few examples, chemical weapons were not used, although they were available to all. No participant inducted all able-bodied citizens into the war effort. The status of neutral nations was observed, and the United States did not drop its third atomic bomb. Real war is inevitably limited war. Clausewitz did, however, describe wars somewhat analogous to general and limited wars as they came to be understood in the aftermath of Korea. Unlike the definitions developed which currently govern our use of force, Clausewitz's types of war are not limited by means and methods, but by the political objectives of the war. These two types of war are wars directed towards the complete overthrow of the enemy and wars for a limited objective. Two different political objectives which drive different levels of violence. Logically, each side of a conflict would use the force necessary to achieve its political objective in a general cost-benefit type of analysis. World War II is the preeminent example of a war where the political objective was the complete overthrow of the enemy, and where it was also the political objective of all parties. Operation Desert Storm is an excellent example of war for a limited objective. In Desert Storm, the political objective was clear, the liberation of Kuwait and degrading Iraq's forces so that they could not present a near-term threat to Kuwait, while leaving Iraq being able to defend itself against the potential Iranian attack. The force employed was calculated to be overwhelming, but did not use all of the force that was available to the U.S.-led coalition. There was damage to civilian infrastructure and civilian deaths, but nothing calculated as beyond military necessity. Similarly, as coalition objectives did not include overthrowing the Ba'athist regime in Baghdad, Iraq similarly limited the force it used in its defense. For example, it did not use its chemical warfare arsenal, weapons it had recently used against Iran. Baghdad calculated the loss of Kuwait as not being worth the likely response of the coalition to that provocation. Given the successful application of war for a limited objective in Operation Desert Storm, why has the most powerful nation on earth been largely unsuccessful in other efforts of using force to compel our enemy to do our will? Is it because, as the Rand Report described it, 
We restrained our use of force while our opponents used whatever force they had to the extremes within their capability. Or is it because we have been operating under a fundamentally flawed notion of war, whether that is general war or limited war? This problem was noted in the 1980s by Colonel Harry Summers in his book On Strategy. He proposed that U.S. civil and military leaders either ignored or misinterpreted Clausewitz's fundamental observations about war in our conflict in Vietnam, most notably the idea of only fighting for a clearly defined and attainable political objective. Now, this applies to both types of war, but the idea seemed particularly absent in our limited wars, wars where we decide from the beginning to restrict our use of military power. The U.S. military embraced this rediscovery of Clausewitz, and this probably led to the Powell-Weinberger doctrine that was the framework for victory in Operation Desert Storm. Key to that doctrine is the requirement for a clear, identifiable, and achievable objective. This begins with a political objective or a desired end state. Military objectives follow from the political objective. Now, as I've said before, in fact, as General Sherman said in the U.S. Civil War, the only acceptable goal for going to war is a better peace. It is up to the political leaders to tell the military planners what that better peace looks like. The military planners must then propose military objectives likely to bring about the conditions that will enable that political vision. The political leaders must then be willing to listen to those military leaders and, as necessary, adjust the resources committed to those military objectives or adjust the political objective to the military and other resources available. Unfortunately, over the past seven decades, this dialectic seems to have been the exception rather than the rule, and our successes have also been the exception rather than the rule. I will provide one personal example. Now, it's widely known that then-Secretary Donald Rumsfeld cut off any discussion by the military for post-combat operations in Iraq, which are generally known as Phase 4 of military operations. As a result, our armed forces achieved its military objectives, but these were not synchronized with achieving a political vision. In fact, that political vision was uh, pretty much missing. When I came back from Iraq in 2005, I became Chief of Staff for the Pentagon Office coordinating support for Iraq and Afghanistan. One of my tasks was to produce a quarterly report for Congress called Measuring Security and Stability in Iraq. You can look them up on the web. Now, if I had to measure something, what was the standard against which that thing would be measured? In other words, what was the desired political objective? Now, we had heard President Bush say time and again, our strategy in Iraq is clear. I tasked my staff to find that strategy. Nothing. I then asked my staff, if such a strategy existed, what would it look like? Specifically, what political end state would we try to achieve? From that, we developed something on our own to use in that report. It wasn't until late 2005 when the administration finally published National Strategy for Victory in Iraq, two and a half years after we invaded. You can ask the same question for almost any so-called limited war the U.S. has found itself in since the end of World War II. What was the political objective in Vietnam? Did we establish and then resource military objectives that enabled the political objective? What about Afghanistan, Somalia, Bosnia, or Serbia? How do we know that we're using the right amount of force in the right way, that is, the proper application of violence, to enable that better and sustainable peace?
that political objective is the most important factor in achieving victory, no matter what method of warfare is chosen. For example, there is no doubt that the political objective of the Taliban in Afghanistan was the overthrow of the U.S.-supported government in Kabul. They succeeded without any of the attributes of conventional or traditional warfare. These political objectives can even be achieved if you don't quite meet your military objectives. In 1973, Egypt had no intention of destroying Israel. Instead, it fought a war for a limited objective. Clausewitz would have been proud. Although the ceasefire ended fighting before any real military decision, it left Egypt in a strong enough position to get what it wanted from the war, a reopened Suez Canal. Egypt even got the rest of the Sinai Peninsula and left Israel to deal with the Gaza Strip. But without a clear political objective to a war, victory is impossible. In summary, all wars are limited in terms of their application of force. The type of war should not be determined by restricting the force to be used, but by the political objective. The application of military violence must then focus on enabling that political objective. As citizens, before a single soldier's life is put at risk, we should demand that our political leaders clearly identify the outcome, that better peace, which justifies the death and destruction of going to war. Until we do that, American involvement in armed conflict reminds me of the discussion between Alice and the Cheshire Cat. Would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? asked Alice. That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, added Alice as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. In this and my other podcasts about war, I may seem to fall into the logical fallacy of appeal to authority, that is, my reliance on Clausewitz. I acknowledge that many academics and defense leaders reject on war his other writings and other military thinking derived from Clausewitz. His opponents have not, however, proposed a replacement holistic theory of war. The results of rejecting Clausewitz, on the other hand, seem apparent. In this series, I try to put Clausewitz's ideas to the test, demonstrating how those ancient ideas can be found in modern warfare. Regardless whether those ideas were first described by Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, or other military theorists, the important thing is whether those ideas reflect success, or whether rejecting those ideas lead to failure. This wraps up my discussion of traditional war, for now anyway. These episodes are not monetized or sponsored, not even by you, the listeners. If you would like these episodes to continue, if you think that these are worthwhile, then please don't hesitate to hit like and let me know. In the next few episodes, I'm going to look at the difference between war and terrorism and why that is important and how that is affecting present military operations. So join me again for those episodes on the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer.